Welcome to Cottonmouth Manchester, a podcast brought to you by Citico, the city centre management company from Manchester and Salford. I'm Vaughan Allen from Citico, and today I'm talking to Lou Cordwell, founder and chief exec of Magnetic North, Manchester's premier digital agency. Lou's also on the board of the Local Enterprise Partnership and recently became director of the, for the North of Albright, the funding and support platform aimed at female entrepreneurs. To go back to the beginning, Lou, uh, how did Magnetic North start? Okay, so uh, Magnetic North started 17 years ago, uh, on the 4th of July, actually, so we just had our birthday. Uh, and um, it, it started because at that point in time, I was working in a traditional communications network, so working for WPP, and um, we'd done some tech projects, but really tech at that point was CD-ROMs and maybe something slightly more advanced, but not, not much more advanced than that. And we were starting to get clients, kind of late 90s, who would knock on our door and say, we'd like a website. Where does one get a website? And can you do that for us? And we couldn't, like most ad agency networks. And so I was the most uh, tech advanced person having done a CD-ROM project <laughs> in the network. And so I got shipped off to go and look at all of these web design studios that were starting to appear uh, largely in geeky boys' bedrooms um, up and down the country. And... I guess work out whether we partnered with someone, whether we uh, bought someone, uh, all over. So, so we worked for I worked for JWT in the UK at that point. So, um, which was London and Manchester, and yeah, and we looked literally at some of the bigger people in uh, London who were you know working off VC money at fifty pounds a square foot in Soho, and some of the smaller three man bands based up you know in uh, Lancashire who were starting to explore the web, um, and what was quite clear at that point was that we were at a really interesting kind of intersection in in technology and communications and the way that people spoke to brands and companies and organizations was about to change and so I got very excited and wrote a proposal to the board and said I think this is this is going to change everything we're not going to make tv anymore and uh brands aren't going to be able to just push things at people they're going to have to ask their permission and they'll be able to walk away and it might not be about one headline or 30 seconds of film it'll be an hour if they like you or three seconds if they don't and a very clever man uh, who was a very nice man at the time who was the UK chief exec who unbeknownst to me was about to leave for the same reason uh, and uh, actually went on to be um, CEO of NTL, if you remember them, uh, uh, said, yeah, you're right, but you'll never make it happen here. And so, so I then spent three months, four months going to recruitment agencies saying, I'm looking for a company that does this, that takes the best of the old world of understanding brands and strategy and communications and all of those things uh, with the best of this new world, which is all about the technology and the rule breaking and the, and uh, realised eventually that there was nobody doing it. So we probably have to do it ourselves. <laughs> that was how accidental entrepreneur is how I would describe it. Probably always the best way. Um, <laughs> what was the digital scene in Manchester like at the time? Oh, I think it was, there was us and Code had just started out about the same time. There was a company called Moonfish, who you might vaguely remember. I, I do remember they, Moonfish, yeah. They quickly disappeared, like lots of people did in the dot-com crash. And there was two or three other small indie kind of startups, but that was it. And all playing around, we didn't really know what we were doing. It was fairly no line of dialogue between them. And then the dot-com crash happened, and uh, half of those disappeared, <laughs> which actually, for those of us that survived, was pretty good, because then, obviously, things recovered, technology wasn't going to go away, and 
Um, yeah, I think it forced everybody to grow up a little bit. So the UK scene, never mind the Manchester scene, was fairly underdeveloped at that point. And you could probably name the owners of all the agencies. All the agencies kind of knew each other. And um, there was much more of a spirit of experimentation then because everybody was... That's where web design came from. Nobody went to university and studied it. It didn't exist. You know, it was people messing about with Flash and, you know, experimenting and sharing code and helping one another, which actually having come from traditional communications which was quite different where people you know shielded their homework and didn't share anything this was a universe where everybody shared everything because they wanted genuinely to collaborate and move move the world on uh, and that, that was a point of time i, I guess where uh, when you talk to corporates they knew they wanted this digital thing <laughs> but they didn't know really what it was or what yeah. that would mean uh, yeah. And presumably they'd read the latest article in Wired about That's this latest right. thing that came along and go, I want that, yeah. and pointed it. Yeah, and, and I think the first two years of our life was spent sitting in a room helping to write the paper to the board to justify why there needed to be any, why 50k of their TV marketing spend needed to go on a digital trial, you know, and... Uh, and actually, you know, you kind of miss those days because they were very experimental. Largely, once the budget had been signed off, nobody cared what it looked like or what it did. So you could be quite brave creatively with the boundaries and, uh, you know, really push things and do interesting work. So it was creatively very exciting, but quite frustrating. And it took you a long time to get things moving and signed off. And very different, I guess, to what we have now, which is, as always happens with marketing, I think everybody thinks they're an expert in marketing. And everybody, because yeah. they use Google, yeah. knows exactly what is going to work for their company at the end of, of course, the day. Of course, of course, because everybody has a teenage son who can code, you know, so they can all do what we do. So um, when you look back there, you, ha- you had the, the crash, but even after that, in Manchester, in London, in, in most of the other cities where you have something of a tech scene, you do have um, numerous quick explosions of companies that look like they're doing amazingly well and then yeah. quickly crashing and, yeah. and, and those those founders usually move on to possibly a bigger company because they haven't yeah. got the business experience or, or yeah. whatever. Um, how have you succeeded? You know, 17 years is, is a huge length of time. <laughs> it's a long um, time. When so many other companies have, have crashed and burned. I, th- I, think, I think probably, um, you know, there's always a bit of good luck. So we've been really lucky... We've got some amazing people here. We Unusually, we have people here who've been here 10, 11, 12 years, which genuinely, they've been on that roller coaster with me as much as, as, much as I have. And they've been very loyal to the company and the brand and, and the mission, you know, to do, to do amazing stuff out of a city. We love being in. I, it, it's it probably it's one of the things you would never do it if you knew how painful it was going to be at the beginning. They're like childbirth, you know. But I think um, the the tenacity to keep going which i think the tenacity has to come because you love what you're doing so if you if you enjoy it and you're kind of dedicated to the people who are uh, you know on the payroll and and whose mortgages you're looking after then that so that gets you out of bed on the mornings when you could quite happily roll over and just go and do a, to go back to work for martin sorrel and it's all his problem at the end of the day so I think the tenacity is there. When, when you start to look back now, and, and uh, you know, I've been through a recession and difficult times and people coming and going, all that stuff, um, 
the, the thing people congratulate me on most, which is kind of nice, even though I feel very uncomfortable with congratulations of any kind, is just surviving. You know, that actually, regardless of what sector you're in, just having a business and, and staying alive that long is something to be proud of. So, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I, th- I think, it's, as, as you know, I um, <laughs> do quite a bit in the, in the fitness space and I, th- I see quite a lot in terms of fitness entrepreneurs, which reminds me mm. of the digital scene yes. in the late 90s. In the, yeah. This idea of two or three of you who like hanging out in the pub are going <laughs> to form a web company or a gym, uh, yes. as increasingly... And it's all going to work because you get on great over a few yeah, drinks. Yeah, yeah. Um, and some, and you may all be very talented in exactly the same way. So yeah. you don't have that person who's the the finisher or that person who's yeah, the starter, yeah. and you don't you don't have that. Um, and I do think it's one of those things of that that difference, I guess, between a hobby which tends to bring in a bit of money, totally, uh, and then actually taking yeah. it as a business. And yeah. how, were you because you came from that corporate background? Were you able to always see it in? you know, have the passion, but see it in quite a clinical way as a business that needs to grow and support people as definitely. well. Definitely. Uh, I think I think it definitely helps. I'm, I'm quite um, serious as a person, if, I, if, I, if that isn't too much of a criticism of myself. But I think what, I mean, we started out as that, you know, a group of us going, yeah, let's do this and we'll have this creative commune and it'll just be amazing and we'll do this amazing boundary pushing work. And within, there were, there were five of us originally and our first ever client who was, in fact, she DM'd me yesterday. I've not heard from her in about 10 years saying, congratulations on 17. That makes me feel very old. She had worked with a lot of indies over the years. And I remember the first time she and I went for a drink and she said, you know, there won't be five of you in a year, don't you? And I was like, oh, how dare you? You know, we're, we're going to stick together like glue. And within six months, two had gone. One who just could not cope with, with being grown up, you know, and um, not having 84 other businesses on the go and one who almost couldn't cope with the lack of grown-upness. If the light bulb goes, you've got to get on a chair and change it. You know, there's no, there is no IT maintenance to call. And actually, within a year, 18 months, that management structure had completely changed and, and was much more reflective of what you could then see we needed to actually survive, um, as opposed to, you know, just people going, yeah, this would be cool, let's do stuff. So I think, again, we were very lucky that we managed to re- regroup the organisation in a way that that did have some longevity to it. But, um, but yeah, I, I think you do, at a certain point you have to grow up. That that was quite a painful point, actually. And I guess however painful it was, having the crash did mean you have an external factor that concentrated minds that you actually Definitely. have to know that you're going to be professional in order to survive it. Yeah, and, and, you know, the industry's changed enormously. Once Flash was dead... You know, all that experimentation and just making beautiful interfaces, all of that's gone. You know, we're now into service design, into experience design. You know, it's a, it's a you know, large scale. We're making things that tens of millions of people use. Therefore, it has to work. It has to be functional. It has to uh, make sense. It can't fall over. It has to integrate. So, and that's ju- just what happens in every industry, in TV advertising, in music, and, you know, in any creative industry, it gets to a point where... Uh, it grows up and that's I think where a lot of people leave and they go and either sell the company or they work for somewhere else or uh, they go on to the next cool fun thing you know which um, I guess were quite unusual in that we stuck it out through through that curve and actually are quite enjoying the other side of the curve as much as we did the first bit. Yeah, I talk again in the fitness space, but I talk quite to quite a few entrepreneurs who very much are the starters and they're those idea yeah. people and they <laughs> yeah. they can get uh 
you know, a franchise up to 30 or 40, yeah. 40 units, but then yeah. suddenly the amount of work, that, that's not what they're interested in. Yes. They're interested in yeah. creating their own. Yeah. And it's, you know, we've seen um, examples in, in, in this city. I mean, Living Ventures were, were yes. a great example yeah. where Tim could create a brand, could create brands yeah. in minutes and minutes and minutes, but it needed Jeremy to be the yes. one that was yeah. there alongside yeah. doing all Definitely. that stuff. And um, how have you changed and developed as a boss over that period? <laughs> um I suppose I've started to think of myself as a boss. That's maybe one maybe one thing which I still struggle with. We, we tend to be quite non-hierarchical, which is you know good in some bits, bad in others. Um, I'm less involved in the actual creative product as we get bigger and we get you know which I, uh, uh, fills me with a little bit of sadness because I do miss that bit and, and I tend to find pet projects across the organisation where nobody will kind of poke me away from it. Um, and, yeah, weirdly, having children, I think... I, I mean, I think we've talked about this before, but weirdly, having children suddenly uh, uh, makes you understand that you're a grown-up, <laughs> that you have a responsibility to people. So so I think I, I would say it's still work in progress. <laughs> it's probably how yeah, I would describe it. It's got to keep evolving, it. hasn't it? <laughs> I mean, I mean, you talked about um, sort of stepping away a bit because one of the things, I mean, obviously we've known each other for quite a few years now um, and, and part of that process over the last four or five years has been getting yeah. a lot more involved with the city and the region right. and the LEP and so on. So yeah. um, talk us through what, well, first of all, what is the LEP for people <laughs> who don't know, but also then talk us through the motivation for why you started getting involved in that, that wider yeah. scene regionally yeah. and nationally. So, um, well, at its most base, the LEP is a platform through which public and private organisations can work together to uh, accelerate the city's economy and to help shape the strategy and to help support the execution of that. So I think the role of LEPs generally has probably changed and is really different from what I can see city to city um, uh, based on um, all sorts of different factors. But in Manchester, it's quite interesting because pre-LEP, Actually, the city had a really long-standing heritage and public and private working very closely together. So it wasn't new news, and it probably feels like it's been doing uh, the LEP a lot longer than it actually has, just because that's the way it's always worked. It's just now there's a new platform for it. So the thing that interested me was, um, I guess, the opportunity to help beyond just the difference you can make in your own sector. So you tend to in an industry like ours, mingle in the sector you always mingle in and know lots of people in that up and down the country and internationally, but but very much focused on what you do. Um, and what's really interesting is to take that as a, you know, I'm fundamentally a strategist, so it's always hard then when you don't see everything else, the wider context. And what that kind of lap role gives you is a complete um, bird's eye view of the whole picture and okay, not an in-depth understanding of things like transport or, you know, housing, no, but an understanding of the intersection and how those things can work together and the bit you might be able to support and help make happen. It, I think it, well, I was going to say it just so happens, but it didn't just so happen. There was obviously a choice to put somebody who was within the creative and digital sector and worked in tech on that board. And what's been interesting for me is that was just as really we've moved through a really interesting curve now from trying to persuade people that creative digital is a really important sector as opposed to a nice peripheral thing that kind of sits on the edges. Uh, and we've been through that journey. Now we, we're into a journey, or I think through a journey, that explains that tech is really important and tech is not a sector. 
it's a horizontal creative and digital as a sector um, and so now we're into the whole next chapter of that you know with the mayor saying we're going to be the UK's number one digital city and you know lots of really interesting um, kind of activities and investments and opportunities happening so so it feels like we've been on quite a journey just to get to the point that everybody recognises tech recognises creative and digital as a sector and now can see its true potential so I guess that, that's the next phase. So how would you describe the Manchester tech scene oh, now? Uh, it, it's it's quite um, it's very exciting in some ways because it feels like we've waited a long time to get to the point where everybody gets it and everybody wants the same thing and everybody's got the same ambition. It's still quite juvenile and, and I, I don't mean in a sense of a comment on the personalities involved but you, you kind of have to remind people sometimes when we're in some of those cross-sectoral discussions that, you know, the property industry's been here for a long time and, you know, the health sector's been here for a long time. You know, so so when we try and match it up against some of those other industries and sectors, people don't understand why it doesn't behave with the same maturity and joined upness. Well, it wasn't here 10 years, you know, so it's, so it's kind of, you know, it, it's only really in the last 20 years that we've even really begun to talk about it. It's only in the last five years we've taken it seriously. So... So I think we just need to kind of give it a little bit of time <laughs> to find its feet. And obviously the work that um, the mayor's doing with trying to bring everybody together at the summit and begin those conversations, they are very early stage. So there's a degree to which we have to manage people's expectations about how quickly it can act in a joined way. But also remembering it isn't actually a sector. So when you hold a digital summit or a tech summit, You've got retailers there, you've got public services there, you've got housing there, you've got, you know, everybody considers themselves a tech business now, rightly so, because no business can really achieve what it wants to without technology, but it's not a sector, you know, so so it's a, you have to think about it in a different way, which, again, I think we're getting that now, but that's quite a beast to, to, to manage. Yeah, I think there's there's been some confusion over definitions oh, uh, along the way. Absolutely, will continue to be. I'm and, sure. and, and I think yeah. that affects the, the public sector, but it also affects yeah. possibly some of those who work within the space as well. Definitely. They may be thinking they're working in a slightly different sector to what they're <laughs> yeah. actually working. Yeah. Um, and 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 yeah, you're right. I mean, particularly retail. I think it's, I think it's um, gone back a little bit from where where it was four or five years ago, where yeah. where retail was. Well, everybody is going to be digital in the next yeah. few years. You know, the, yeah. the understanding that actually experiential stuff is is really important to people Definitely. and how they how yeah. they relate to retail um has has taken over a little bit and probably possibly too much now yeah. Uh, yeah. It, we're, we're swinging the other way uh, but i can remember some conversations that we had what five six years ago where there was definitely a confusion between is this creative is this media is this whatever yeah. it would be and, yeah. and actually there were meetings being called where everybody and they just people would just look at each other totally yeah. bewildered why they were in the same room as yes. everybody else yeah absolutely so what do you think works currently uh within manchester within greater manchester within the scene what what's missing from it what's needed uh so the answer you know it feels like the the holy grail is skills you know every conversation every meeting kind of culminates in the big the big void if we could solve one thing that would be the biggest thing to solve. And there's no no light bulb moment in that. But I think the biggest thing I think we have to focus on now is uh, trying to join some of the skills conversations up because my, my general sense is there's an awful lot of very fragmented 
activities programs that not necessarily that any of them are wrong but they don't all necessarily join hands but the biggest issue we've got is employers and future employers shaping that skills journey and there's still an awful lot of people who spent an awful lot of time in education coming out and they're not equipped for the jobs that are advertised tomorrow and uh, I, I mean last week alone I spoke to one company who wants to hire 900 developers this year another that wants to hire 600 and another that's hiring 200 that's in one week I have no idea where those people are going to come from you know but but some the gap between what employers need and what education in its broadest sense is delivering uh, it is too big and we need to quickly find some fixes to that because 10-year programmes are great, but we've got a problem now. And if we could solve that, we, there, we, we have something that not just works in terms of the employers that are here and the future employees, the young people that are here, but an inward investment narrative that's ridiculously compelling because every other city in the world right, is, is, mess, is, is experiencing the same problems. We're not unique but we do have a massive young population, a massive population that's moving through our city in terms of higher education, further education. You know, so, so we've got some of the building blocks, but we're just not, for some reason, pointing them in the right direction. And I'm, I'm sure... And do you think that goes back to schools rather than universities and colleges? I think it goes all the way down to... Because every school has a coding club now, don't yeah, they? But so that's not really solving... No, coding is only part of the answer we need. You know, if you look out of the door now to my offices... UX designers, visual designers, producers, uh, content creators, you know, the, 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 what digital skills, and that, and that will all be different in five years again. So, so, and that's before we've really looked at, you know, IoT or, you know, uh, more kind of um, industrial tech or, you know, so there's, there's a whole, whole gambit of skills that we need to solve. And I think we just need to find a smarter way for employers to be able to influence that, which, which seems... It's easily said, I'm sure, very hard to very hard to deliver. And I suppose there aren't many companies that are at the level where, you know, a, a KPMG or one of the big four, increasingly they're talking about not actually taking graduates because mm-hmm. they're willing to take mm-hmm. people at 18, yeah. 19, and, yeah. and, and you get your degree as part of yeah. being on their training programme. And yeah. certainly in the States, that's how McKinsey will do it. McKinsey will pick you up at yeah. 17, then yeah. you'll go to Harvard or Yale or wherever it would be exactly. um, and, and come out with a degree. But you'll yeah. have been an employee all that time, which helps with tuition yeah. fees, nothing. Yeah. But, uh, but I'm, I'm assuming in, in your sector, there aren't that many companies that can do that. But actually, if you start to agglomerate on a regional yeah. basis, you can start to... Yeah. talk at, at 14, 13, 14, 15 and yeah. take people through on that route. That's it, that's it. And, and if I think back to when we started 17 years ago, there were no web design courses. There were, we were hiring people on their own personal portfolio that they built at the weekends, that they built in the evenings. And you know what, it worked. It's like you don't, to a degree, sometimes it works better than the people who've spent £40,000 and three years of their life and now we then have to start the journey again to reskill them in a way that works in a commercial environment. So I do think there are smarter, more entrepreneurial ways to get uh, young people and, you know, and older people who want to reskill and change career into um, organisations like ours that really, really want talent. But, but at the same time, we need talent that can make that can add value within 12 months. We can't spend five years, uh, or we can't, we won't have a business, you know. So so I think it is horses for courses and the solution for an EY or a KPMG is absolutely not the solution for a, a tech SME, but both are important to the economy, you know. So, uh, yeah, 
it's it's going to be a challenge, but I'm sure it's going to become more of, even more of a focus over the next two years. Yeah, it's been, always been one of those those challenges: is how do you get people who who may well be, you know, teenagers in fairly deprived um, neighbourhoods, but are vloggers or yeah. or, work, or doing music or whatever it is, yeah. and are content creators at uh, probably quite a high level, yeah. but actually aren't. Uh, being taught to even think about a yeah. job in yeah. a proper company, in yeah. quotes, with, with yeah. all that stuff. And they may not need it because they may be, you know, vlogging millionaires by the yeah. time they're 18. Probably. Which is, so having, having two daughters who are desperate to set up their own YouTube channel at the oh, moment, because yeah, obviously that's yeah. the only way that they'll make their and millions by the, the time they're well, 11. Yeah. Um, you know, but, it, but that has always been a dream. And part of, I guess, um, what's happened with education in, in Manchester is that attempt to get more of a local curriculum that yeah. allows us to take that route through from yeah. a fairly, fairly young age. Yeah. Um, you get you get the argument against, of course, that this is very reductive in terms of all you're doing is making people for, ready for the workplace and yeah. what about pure science and, yeah. and so on. Yeah. How do you answer that? Well, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because I think I think we have to... If, people, if, if the end goal is you want people to have good lives in long-term employment and fulfilment then you have to equip them with the skills that they need and some of that is a actually not around a particular technology or a, a quick fix it's around some of the things that we hire for which are strategic thinking team working uh empathy good human skills you know there, there are things that you can that are life whatever the current technology platform will be they will be the things that make you very employable Uh, but then there are also some immediate needs of we need people who can work in this platform in this technology now and we need 20 of them and what we're going to do you know and and I think the thing as much as you know technology giveth it taketh away with the other hand you know and so genuinely some of these things we've created in terms of you know warehouse jobs for Amazon or whoever AI is going to remove all of those jobs. Even you, know, you look at the legal sector, all of the junior solicitor tasks can be replaced by AI within the next five years. So, so we've got, as well as Brexit, we've got other external forces that are going to make us look at completely reworking how people go into the workforce and earn a living because those jobs that are there today even are not going to be there in two years. You know, So... It's it's a hard and and again you go back to working with the smart employer organisations will know what those jobs are going to be in two years time. You've got to get that out of their heads and help that shape the the uh, skills development in education out of education that you're giving young people now. Otherwise, they are going to be defunct. You know, we're gonna we're gonna train them only for them to be defunct in two years anyway. So. One of the other things, of course, we've got to do is is um, change the attitude towards starting your own company, being yes. entrepreneurial as well, yes. in, yeah. in, a more, in a wider sense. I mean, after 17 years, do you think the attitude in the UK towards entrepreneurs has changed, has developed? I think, I think yeah, it's suddenly quite sexy, isn't it? It's quite, um, well, not suddenly, but in the last five years, it's, uh, you know, particularly tech startups has become the kind of new rock and roll of it all, you know, and everybody wants to do that. I think the problem is the perception of what it takes to do that is completely unrealistic, you know. And so, so the idea that, like you say, you start a YouTube channel, suddenly you're a gazillionaire, you know, it's a, there's a certain amount of mythology, I think, that's gone around, particularly tech. Um, and so we need to um, actually equip people with the skills to really grow a business and build a business, which are... And also they're completely different than the skills to start a business, you know. In a sense, the starting bit is the easy bit, isn't it? It's... Um, 
bit like having kids you know having kids is really easy it's the next 20 years that's really difficult keeping them that's <laughs> um, do you think though we've got over this thing I mean it always used to be said and, and I think there's, there's still some truth to it you know when you when you talk to American entrepreneurs they wear their failures as, as badges of honour yeah um, and we we still view a bankruptcy in a very negative way in, yeah. in this country I don't, I don't know is that changing as part of the mythology change? I think it's changed a little bit not necessarily with investors because I think investors still in this country like to see a long line of successes because they don't like risk I think there's a real and, and this is a real risk actually that what seems to have developed in a almost emulating that kind of Silicon Valley mindset is a real bro frat party kind of uh approach to tech in this country not just in london in manchester you know everywhere you go and and i went to a tech investor event the other week and i walked in and there were 100 people two of which were women myself and the event organizer <laughs> and and had i not been uh yeah 20 years older than most of the people in the room and known at least three of the people that have turned around 20 years ago i'd have turned around and walked back out and it's a very intimidating, um, I mean, slightly comedic, you know, in the sense of how ridiculous it is that it's just trying to be something it's not, you know. So so I think we need to kind of develop our own uh, version of that rather than just try and emulate, you know, the way that Silicon Valley or whoever's done it, you know. The, we, there is a more human, Mancunian way to be absolutely brilliant at the things that we make but not have to try and be something we're not, you know. It's... Um, can't be sustainable and we are just basically cutting off whole swathes of people who don't engage with that agenda and don't like it when you talked about funders there um one of the issues when you talk to startups particularly outside of london is that there isn't the funding yeah. structure beyond yeah. you know you can usually get initial funding you can get yeah twenty thousand pounds or a hundred hundred thousand yeah. but that that real ability to ramp up and ramp up very quickly just isn't there and that yeah. would seem to be one of the major priorities if the mayor really wants to fulfill this dream yeah Um, how do we go about that well i think um so the investors will say it's all about deal flow you know so they want to see a massive pipeline of really investable companies Um, and so some of that then becomes an ecosystem play and having some of the spaces and some of the uh, ecosystems and the event programs and all of those kind of things and they're relatively long term you know in the sense that they take a while they're not a flicker switch overnight um there's a degree to which you need one or two uh to put the flag in the ground you know so the work that people like Hugh at GP Bullhound you know have done is has been a long term believing before anybody else believed kind of effort and I guess as London gets more saturated you know um the north and you know organized uh, cities outside London become more attractive look at the work that Lee Stratford through ADV is doing. Again, that massive commitment to um, helping to grow tech industry outside of London. I think once you've got one or two people who are very credible in their sector, who stick a flag in the ground, people start to kind of go, oh, hold on, there must be something happening up there. So, so I think it's a combination of things. I think it's about narrative, putting ourselves on the right stage, um, some people taking a leap of faith or seeing that future opportunity creating the deal flow creating the culture where people understand how to have an investment conversation um and uh yeah it's i'm being confident about what our flavor of that's going to be and that that's going to be different than bristol or berlin or wherever 
do you think also part of this something for particularly for younger well they don't have to be young but new on new entrepreneurs is is that mentoring role that yeah. there, there are other people that they can talk to and yeah. Um, so much in this sector as in any other sector but particularly when you're in the first 10 20 30 years of a sector is about that personal contact and that ability to do introductions definitely and I think again that's part of the ecosystem development is once you've got people who've come through made it sold and are looking to either go again or support other people when that that takes sometimes time to do that because you need people who feel an affinity with the place and therefore want to see other people succeed here Um, but they themselves have then got time and space and experience and want to share that with other people. So I think I think we're beginning to see the beginnings of that. You know, you, you see some fairly successful entrepreneurs who've exited or are exiting and want to support and either invest or mentor, you know, your Scott Fletchers and, you know, they're, and they're passionate about the city. So they want people, they want the Manchester flag to be flying all over the world. Um, but we just need more, more like that. But again, it will just take time. Um, finally then, uh, for people who are just setting out, what would your advice be? Um, uh, my honest advice would be to just follow your gut instincts because I think if you think about it too long, you'll never do it. If you if you wrote down, as I did, the pros and the cons, you would never do it. Um, and so if if you've got something kind of burning away at you that says, I really want to just see what this is like, in a sense, you've nothing to lose. You know, the earlier you do it, the better, because you're only more employable for having a go. And and the the earlier you are, the less you've got to lose. <laughs> so, so I think, um, you know, you just got to think what's the worst going to happen. For me, the worst idea was being at 65 and thinking, well, what, I wonder what would have happened if I'd ever started that company, you know, in 2000. So uh, even if I'd gone bust in 2001, at least I'd have known the answer, you know. And, and by the time the cycle came round again, there would have been another opportunity a few I've, years always, later, which is, which always. is still more to come. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks to Lou for joining us. Thanks, Paul. We'll be talking to more entrepreneurs based in the city centre over the coming months. If you have any comments or ideas for things to cover in the future, you can talk to us on Twitter at CottonmouthMCR or through email on podcasts at cityco.com. Cottonmouth Manchester is available on iTunes, Acast and SoundCloud or direct from the source at cityco.com slash podcasts. Please leave a review or give us some likes, people, please, if you like what you hear. Until next time.